Romans chapter 1, we're just going to read two verses, very familiar verses, verse 16 and 17. Let's read them together, shall we? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Lord, we love you today and we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your presence as we've worshipped you. And now, Lord, I ask that you will strengthen me that I may be equipped to deliver your word. And I pray that you will give us ears to hear what the Spirit will say in the midst of the preaching today. Open our hearts. We may be transformed by the entrance of your word. I lift up other life-giving churches and I pray blessing upon them. And I, I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you pray especially for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith I ask you to draw them so that not one of them is lost Lord I lift up to you the concerns that are on the hearts of the people who are part of this worship experience today Lord each of us brought with us burdens prayers needs and I ask that you'll give attention to those, that you'll touch your people today. Lift the heavy burden from them, O oh Lord. Lift their, lighten their load. Be the glory and the lifter of their head today. Bring the help of your presence to them. And Father, I continue to Join my prayers with prayers of people around this world for the tragic thing that is happening in Ukraine right now. I pray protection upon the people of God there. So many innocent ones that are caught in the crossfire. I pray, O oh Lord, that you will not only protect, but that you will provide. I thank you for those who are providing uh, assistance and humanitarian aid. I ask, O oh Lord, that you will strengthen their hands and encourage their hearts. I pray that you will protect them as they are traveling back and forth across the border, that you will guide their steps. Lord, at the end of the day, we look to you as our only source of help. We thank you because you are a present help in time of need. I pray all of these things today now in the only name that matters, the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated.
No one person is identified with the Protestant Reformation any more than Martin Luther. Born November 10, 1483, the oldest of seven children, his was not an easy childhood. In the Luther household, conditions were harsh and discipline was stern. Martin was a bright lad, so his parents sent him to Latin schools in Mansfield. In 1501, at the age of 17, his father desired for him to become a lawyer, so he entered the University of Erfurt. Although he excelled in his studies and gave every promise of becoming successful in his profession, Luther was troubled in soul and greatly agitated at the thought that one day he would have to meet God and give an account of his life before him. In his boyhood days, he had looked at the frowning face of Jesus in the stained glass window of the parish church at Mansfield and trembled. During his college days, two of his closest friends died, and Luther trembled more. He knew that one day he himself would die. He didn't know when, but he knew that when he died, Jesus would judge him. On August 17, 1505, at the age of 21, Luther suddenly left the university and entered the monastery of the Augustinian hermits at Erfurt. He later said that he entered the monastery not to study theology, but to save his soul. The monastic orders required rigorous discipline, and Luther gave himself to the Augustinian plan with a determination and force that characterized his entire life. He devoted himself to menial tasks. He fasted and prayed and went nights without sleep. He even practiced self-flagellation, whipping his own back to atone for his sins and shortcomings. Above all, he adhered to the sacrament of penance, confessing even the most trivial sins for hours on end, until his superiors wearied of his exercise and ordered him to stop confessing until he had committed some sin worth confessing. <laughs> Luther's piety gained him a reputation of being the most exemplary of monks. Later he wrote to the Duke of Saxony, I was indeed a pious monk and followed the rules of my order more strictly than I can express. If ever a monk could obtain heaven by his monkery, I should certainly have been entitled to it. The religious wisdom of Luther's day instructed him to satisfy God's demand for righteousness by doing good works. But what works can come from a heart like mine, thought Luther. How can I stand before the holiness of my judge with works polluted in their very source? In Luther's anguish, God sent him a wise spiritual father by the name of John Stalpitz, the vicar general of the congregation. One day, Stalpitz asked Luther, why are you so sad, Brother Martin? Replied Luther, I do not know what will become of me. Stalpitz said to Luther, more than a thousand times have I sworn to our holy God to live piously, and I have never kept my vows. Now I swear no longer, for I know that I cannot keep my solemn promises. If God will not be merciful towards me for the love of Christ, 
and grant me a happy departure when I must quit this world. I shall never, with the aid of all my vows and all my good works, stand before him. I must perish. The thought of divine justice terrified Luther. As he discussed this with Staupitz, the wise vicar pointed Luther to the place where he himself had found peace. Look at the wounds of Jesus Christ to the blood that he has shed for you. It is there that the grace of God will appear to you. Instead of torturing yourself on account of your sins, throw yourself into the Redeemer's arms. Trust in him, in the righteousness of his life, in the atonement of his death. Do not shrink back. God is not angry with you. It is you who are angry with God. Listen to the Son of God. But how could Luther do that? Where could he hear the Son of God speak to him as Stalpitz said he would? In the Bible, said the vicar general. So it was that Luther, who had only first seen a Bible in his college days, shortly before entering the, min the monastery, began to study and eventually to teach Scripture at the University of Wittenberg. He taught the book of Psalms, Galatians, Hebrews, and Romans. While he was studying the book of Romans, the truth began to dawn on him that the righteousness that we need in order to stand before the holy God is not a righteousness we can attain by our own effort. In fact, it is not human righteousness at all. It is divine righteousness, and it becomes ours as a free gift of God. The Spirit of God broke through to Luther's heart when he understood the words of Paul in Romans 1.17. The righteous shall live by faith. Luther wrote, either sin is with you lying on your shoulders or it is lying on Christ, the Lamb of God. Now if it is lying on your back, you are lost. But if it is resting on Christ, you are free and will be saved. In 1510, five years after he became a monk and two years after he had begun to teach the Bible at the new University of Wittenberg, Luther was sent by his order to Rome on church business. Although the purpose of his travel was to fulfill an assignment, he approached the ancient imperial city as a visiting pilgrim. When he arrived, he began making the rounds of the relics and the shrines and the churches. He listened to all the superstitious tales that were told him. In the church of St. John Lateran in Rome, there is a set of stone stairs said to have originally been the stairs leading up to Pilate's house in Jerusalem, the very stairs on which the Lord Jesus would have walked. For this reason, they were called the Scala Sancta, or Holy Stairs. It was the custom for pilgrims to ascend these stairs on their knees, praying as they went. At certain intervals, there were stains in the stone said to have been caused by the bleeding wounds of Christ. And the worshiper would bend over and kiss these steps, praying a long time before ascending painfully to the next ones. Remission of years of purgatory was promised to all who would perform the supposedly pious exercise. 
When Luther went there, he began as the others had. But as, as he crawled up the staircase, the words kept coming forcefully to his mind, the righteous will live by faith. They seemed to echo over and over again, growing louder with each repetition. The righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. <clears throat> Luther, however, wasn't living by faith. He was living by fear. The old superstitious doctrines and the new biblical theology wrestled within him. By fear, said Luther. By faith, said the Apostle Paul. By fear, said the scholastic fathers of medieval Catholicism. By faith, said the scriptures. By fear, said those who agonized beside him on the staircase. By faith, said God the Father. With that truth pounding in his heart, Luther rose in the middle of that staircase up which he had been dragging himself. He shuddered at his superstition and folly. He realized that God had saved him by the righteousness of Christ received by faith. He was to exercise that faith, receive that righteousness, and live by trusting God. He hadn't been doing that. Slowly, after standing, he turned on Pilate's staircase and walked down to the bottom. He went back to Wittenberg, and in time, he took the righteous will live by faith as the foundation of all his doctrine. Before there was ever the reformation of Christendom, there was the reformation of Luther. And this reformation began with the revelation of sola fide, faith alone. Now, I tell you that story because it's been my observation in over 38 years of being a lead pastor that Luther's experience is a very common problem even today. It's the struggle for salvation. I don't suppose there's a person listening to this message that doesn't want to know how to get into heaven. The answer is really very simple. The Bible teaches that what you need to get to heaven is righteous perfection. That's it. Just be perfect. And it's right here that the train goes off the rails. You know, we may shake our heads at Martin Luther, but the reality is that in an attempt to produce this righteous perfection, we have created quite a list of things that are required and things that are prohibited that is just as fear-producing. The thinking goes that if you do the right things and refrain from doing the wrong things, then you'll be good enough to get into heaven. The problem is nobody is capable of keeping all the requirements of the list. Just about the time you're feeling pretty good because you don't lie and you don't cheat and you don't steal and you don't envy, you don't gossip, you don't lose your temper and you don't overindulge and you don't fornicate. Well, you find yourself then being tripped up by pride that you're able to be so virtuous. You know, we've attached all kinds of extras to try and earn favor with God. Haven't we? Attend church, pray, read your Bible, be baptized, become a member, pay your tithes and offering, pay your tithes and offering, pay your tithes. Oh, excuse me. See, I got stuck there for a moment. Give, give, 
Give to missions and charity. Perform acts of service in the community. Get involved in the ministries of the church. Did I say pay your tithes and offering? Yeah, I think so. Do good. Think good thoughts. Don't dip, smoke, or chew, and don't run around with those that do. Stay out of bars. Don't curse. The list is practically endless. It's exhausting trying to remember what to do and what to avoid. Everywhere, everywhere you turn, there's a landmine. On the one hand, you find somebody that is behaving far worse than you, so you feel pretty good about yourself. But then you find another that is far more devout than you, and you beat yourself up trying to attain to that level. And just about the time you think you've got it all mastered, you run into the message of the Lord through the prophet in Isaiah 64 and 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. The stark reality is there is nothing you can do to achieve the perfection necessary to gain entrance to heaven. All your hard work is an exercise in futility. Now, that would be terrible, tragic news indeed, were that the end of the story. But our text tells about a sacrificial solution. And Paul writes in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. When you cannot be good enough to earn heaven, when you cannot save yourself, God has provided a solution to the struggle, and it's the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on Calvary's cross. Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, left the splendors of heaven, came to this earth as a baby born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died a cruel death to pay the penalty for the sin of lost humanity, was buried in a borrowed tomb, was resurrected on the morning of the first day of the week, ascended back to the Father in glory, sits at the right hand of the majesty on high as the great intercessor. And is one day coming back, first to catch away those who believe in him, and second, to establish his peaceable kingdom over which he will rule for all eternity. This is the gospel, the good news, the power of God for salvation. When you cannot pay the penalty for your sin, Jesus paid it for you. All your good deeds cannot earn you entrance into heaven, so Jesus did everything that was necessary to give you access. When every natural inclination screams, do, God says, <laughs> done. God is not impressed with you or your good works, but he's very impressed with his son. <laughs> the power of the gospel is the power to save. I want to tell you, first of all, it saves from the penalty of sin. This is known as justification. Justification is a big theological word that simply means that God declares you to be righteous. Now, get this. Justification doesn't change who you are. It merely changes your status before God. Let me, let me illustrate. 
when Betsy and I stood before the minister during our wedding ceremony and exchanged vows and rings, at the end of that ceremony, the minister declared us to be husband and wife. Now, I want to tell you, that pronouncement didn't change who we were, but it did change our status from being engaged to now being married. Because those commitments we made were lifelong commitments, there was only a need for us to change our status once. We don't need to keep doing that over and over again. The same is true with your position before God. There is only the need to make one lifetime commitment to Jesus in order to be declared righteous before God. However... Just like our marriage commitment has resulted in significant changes in who Betsy and I have become, <laughs> my faith in Jesus does the same thing spiritually. And that leads me to the second part of this salvation that comes from the power of the gospel. The gospel saves from the power of sin. And this is known as sanctification. Sanctification is a process in which you are set apart for God's work and conformed to the image of Jesus. Unlike justification, which is a work of God that comes from without, sanctification requires your participation. See, while it is still God at work in your life through the power of the gospel to produce godly character, it requires you to submit to and cooperate with the work that God is doing in your life. See, since the day that minister declared that Betsy and I were legally married based on the commitment we made to each other, we have been given some very godly biblical counsel over the years for our marriage, both from individuals and from reading and studying that we have done. We've, we've learned some things about how to make a marriage work. In order for any of that guidance to actually have any effect, we have had to intentionally put those principles to work in our lives. See, it doesn't do any good to understand we need to do this and this and this and then go away and never do it. We have to put it to work. That's how sanctification works. God's Word, the Holy Spirit, and other believers can all be used by God to reveal what He wants you to become. But those things are only effective if you put them into practice. The power of the gospel saves from the penalty of sin, that's justification. Saves from the power of sin, that's sanctification. It also saves from the presence of sin. This is known as future glorification. I want to tell you, there is coming a day when your salvation will be brought to its full and final fulfillment. At the return of Jesus to this earth, God will transform your mortal physical body into the eternal physical body in which you will dwell forever. And in that new body that the Lord has prepared for you, you will experience no more sickness, no more pain, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more, no more struggle, no more counseling sessions, no more doctor's appointments, no more hospital stays, no more funerals. There will be no more separation from loved ones. In your glorified body, you won't have to worry about whether or not to wear a mask. You won't have to be concerned about being vaccinated or unvaccinated. You won't have to fret over the price of gas or of groceries. You won't hear about one nation invading another on the nightly news. There will 
will be any reports of fire or flood or famine. The answer to the struggle for salvation is given by God. It's the sacrificial solution provided through his son Jesus. It's the power of the gospel. Power to save both for time and for eternity. Praise be to God. There's the struggle for salvation. There's a sacrificial solution. But that solution isn't any good unless there's a way to appropriate it. In order for this solution to be of any benefit, there has to be a mechanism to apply it to your life. And this is what I call the sovereign strategy. The Apostle Paul quotes from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk and writes in verse 17 what became the rallying cry of the Reformation. The righteous man shall live by faith. Now, I wish I had time to just delve into both, the, both of these verses deeper, but, but I'm, just, I'm, I'm just having to skate over the top of it, okay? So just, just go with me on this, all right? The righteous man shall live by faith. Faith is the issue with God. Always has been, always will be. That's what Hebrews 11.6 means when it says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. That simply means no matter, no matter what else you do in life, no matter how good you are, no matter how kind, no matter how moral, no matter how successful, life lived outside the parameters of faith is not pleasing to God. In fact, Romans 14.23 goes so far as to say, whatever is not from faith is sin. Now, just let that soak in for a moment, okay? We'll just, we'll just sit there. What puts you in right standing with God is not your works. It isn't because you live by all the requirements of the church. It isn't because you follow rules, regulations, and rituals. It isn't because you crawl on your knees on nails, glass, and sharp, jagged rocks. It isn't your piety. It isn't your productivity. Any works that try to add to justification are evil. What puts you in right standing with God and gains you entrance into heaven is faith. If you're going to have the righteousness of God applied to your life, then you're going to have to accept the sovereign strategy. You're going to have to live by faith. Well, that sounds pretty good, Pastor, but what in the world does that mean? How does that work? What does it mean to have a living faith? Well, I'm glad you asked so that I can finish the rest of this message. First of all, a living faith means that you acknowledge the presence of God. This verse, the righteous shall live by faith, it was first written by the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. In chapter 1 of that book, the prophet has a concern. The people of God are in trouble because they've abandoned God and they've abandoned his ways. There is injustice, there's lawlessness, and it seems that God is nowhere around. Habakkuk concluded that God wasn't involved anymore. Maybe he was in the temple, but he wasn't in everyday life. You read it, it's right there in chapter 1 of Habakkuk. When Habakkuk voices those complaints to God, however, the Lord speaks to him and tells him he's going to do a work that is going to astound the prophet. 
He's going to, he says he's going to raise up the Chaldeans, which is an ancient name for the Babylonians. And even though they are evil and wicked, God says they're going to be an instrument in his hands for divine purpose. Now that just messes with your theology a little bit, doesn't it? What God was saying to Habakkuk and what he's saying to you today is that even when you don't see him, he's right in the middle of it all. God, I don't see anything positive about these Babylonians going on. <laughs> you don't understand. I'm, 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 I'm taking care of this. I'm right there. When you can't see him, God is in the midst of it. A living faith gets up every day and says, God, I know you're here. I may not understand what you're doing, but I know you're here. I mean, that's the message David sang about in Psalm 139. In that psalm, he says that you don't walk into the presence of God one minute and then leave it the next. Have you ever read Psalm 139? Three of you, okay. Y'all, do y'all read your Bibles? Oh, okay. David says, God, you're with me when I rise up and you're with me when I sit down. He says, when I speak, you know what I say. When I think, you know what I think. You put a hedge in front of me and a hedge behind me. That means if I go this way, I'm heading right toward God. If I turn around and go the opposite way, I'm heading right towards God. He goes on and says, I can't get away from you. No matter where I go, you're there. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I travel to the remotest place on the planet, when I arrive, you're already there waiting on me. Living faith begins with the understanding of the presence of God. Everywhere you go, he goes. Everything you're involved in, he's involved in. Of course, he's with you in church, but I want to tell you, he's also with you on your job. He's with you in your living room. He's with you on the golf course. He's with you in the mall. He's with you in the restaurant. Wherever you go, there he is. Not only does a living faith mean that you acknowledge the presence of God, it also means you await the guidance of God. Too many have tried to divide life up into sacred and secular. But that isn't the way for the righteous person who lives by faith. Everything in life is submitted to the guidance of the Lord for the person who is living by faith. Everything. Your career, who you marry, if you marry, your finances. See, people want to keep, put God in a, a little box over here, but God wants to take care of your finances too. He wants you to, to organize and manage your finances in agreement with him. Your purchases. Your children. A living faith gets up in the morning with the knowledge that everywhere you go, God goes. And a living faith then says, God, everything I do, I want to do your way. I want to be your person. I don't just want to be a businessman. I want to be the kind of business person you want me to be. I don't just want to be a physician that treats the body. I want to be the doctor that has a spiritual healing touch as well. I don't just want to be a husband or a father. I want to be the husband and the father you want me to be. I don't just want to be a wife or a mother. I want to be the wife or the mother you want me to be. I'm going to listen to your voice. I'm going to follow your plan. You lead, I'll follow. 
Living faith acknowledges the presence of God. Living faith awaits the guidance of God. There's one more. Living faith accepts the sovereignty of God. Now, I want to tell you, this is where too many people get in trouble. Living faith says, God, I know all day long you will be with me. I want to do things your way. And then, no matter what happens, whether I like it or not, whether it's what I wanted or not, whether it's what I prayed for or not, I'm not going to stop believing. I'm going to trust you. See, there's a kind of uh, faithology that has been taught that says real faith never accepts anything but the desire of its heart. You believe it and you receive it. You name it, you claim it. Real faith grits its teeth and makes it happen and you don't stop claiming it until God gives it to you. See, I'm sure you'll believe God if he heals you of cancer. But if you have cancer and you ask God to heal you of that cancer and God doesn't heal you of that cancer, will you still believe him? Will you still trust him? If you lose your job and your finances are desperate and you pray, but God doesn't give you that job, will you still trust him? Do you have the kind of faith that says, God, if you give me this, I will believe. But if you don't give me this, I will still believe. I just trust you. There's a theology of faith being taught that says, if you believe it will happen, and then it doesn't happen, then you must not really believe it. Anybody heard something like that? Well, that's when I hear the prophet Habakkuk say in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stall, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Now, some of you think, oh, well, that was good for the Old Testament, but, but, but you're a New Testament kind of person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You think in the New Testament all you have to do is believe and receive it. Well, why don't you try telling that to the Apostle Paul? He suffered from a thorn in the flesh and prayed for three years for God to heal him and deliver him. And finally God said, no, I'm not going to take away the thorn, but my grace is sufficient. Why don't you try telling that to Jesus? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now, if I haven't done it yet, I'm about to make some of you very uncomfortable. I don't believe in miracles. I don't believe in healing. I believe in a miracle worker, and I believe in a healer. I pray for healing, I pray for miracles, but my faith is in God. If he heals, if he works a miracle, I rejoice. If he doesn't heal and he doesn't work a miracle, I'm still going to believe and I'm still going to rejoice, and that is faith. Do you know the Bible never says that faith brings victory? 
The Bible says faith is the victory. Just having faith, that's the victory. That kind of unshakable, immovable faith. I'm just going to rejoice in the Lord. That's the victory. Living faith says, God, I believe. Regardless of what you do, I believe. That's the faith that can apply the power of the gospel to bring salvation. It's a faith that says there's nothing I'm able to do, nothing I'm able to bring to the table that is of any value. My salvation doesn't come from anything except believing in the completed work of Jesus on Calvary's cross. My salvation comes only from faith in the gospel, the good news of Jesus and what he has accomplished on my behalf. Several months ago, Betsy and I were in another town eating in a restaurant. After we finished eating, I got the attention of our waitress and asked for the check so we could pay for the meal. She said, oh, someone has already paid for your meal. (laughs) Now, we didn't know who did that. I mean, we're in a completely different town. We didn't recognize anybody in the restaurant. We didn't know when they paid the bill. We didn't know what method of payment they used. All we knew was what she told us, somebody else paid the bill. Now, when I, had, when I heard that, I have to tell you, I didn't get up and go in the kitchen and try to work for my meal. I didn't grab a cloth and start wiping down tables. I didn't insist that the waitress take my credit card. I didn't protest saying, oh, that's too easy. There must be something I can do. Huh. I just said, thank you. And I freely walked out of the restaurant. May I just tell you that this is the way it is with your salvation? Jesus, the Son of God, has paid for your salvation. You don't have to do anything to try and earn it. All you have to do is believe he did it and say thank you. The way you get your salvation is the way you maintain your salvation, by faith. You aren't saved and you don't live by feelings. You don't live by formula. You don't live by friends and family. You don't live by fashion. The righteous will live by faith. One person has made faith into an acronym. Forsaking all, I trust him. This is your freedom. This is your confidence. I want to tell you, God isn't looking over your shoulder, ready to fire a lightning bolt on your head when you cross a line. You don't live by fear. You live by faith. You are saved by faith alone. When you are saved, then you live the rest of your life by that same faith. Hear it one more time. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, 
but the righteous man shall live by faith. Yes! If somebody will grab a hold of that, it will set you free. You quit just looking over your shoulder all the time. You'll stop walking in guilt and condemnation. It'll set you free if you will just realize the righteous will live by faith.